Welcome to a special edition of Men Going Home. I'm Chris Wolf, and we've got a special guest we'd like to introduce to you, who will we will be interviewing from Noah's Transition House in Tampa next month. Many of you remember Barry Stevens, who was convicted of first-degree murder at the age of 17 and spent over 30 years in prison. The Davie police officer who witnessed the crime 33 years ago and arrested Barry actually saw our show, reached out to us, and we asked her to be a guest. So p- before we introduce her, please welcome my good friend and co-host of this show, uh, Andy Corge. Welcome, Andy. Chris have you ever seen a, an email quite like what we saw? No, that email blew me blew week. me away when I received it uh, because first of all, the the chances of somebody who was at the scene of a crime 33 years ago seeing a show today and reaching out to us is pretty amazing. It, it was, and and uh, uh, former detective uh, Renee Griggs. Uh, in that email talked about some details that were left out. I'm looking at the email right. as we as we talk here this morning. Um, you know, details that were left out that she believed your, our audience may be interested to know. And uh, I, I'm I'm excited to be able to get her on the air and and proud of her that she's a a, a police right. officer that wants to see uh, criminal justice reform in, yeah. in, in many ways that we needed here in America. Yeah, Barry was an a, an outstanding guest and he told us the, the details of, of what happened from his perspective. So to get an email from not only the arresting officer but the arrest the the officer who rolled up on a crime in progress was pretty amazing. Yeah, and that was one of the real unique things about the whole thing was. She not only was she the officer that arrested him, but she actually witnessed the entire thing, which must have been a very, I imagine, a very traumatic experience for Renee. And we'll, we'll talk to her about all of that in a moment. Let's get this show on the road. I believe we have uh, former officer Renee Griggs on a Zoom call with us. So please welcome former Davy police officer Renee Griggs. Welcome to the show, Renee. Thank you, Chris, so much. Thank you both, uh, you and Andy, for inviting me. I really, really appreciate it. Well, as, and as I we, appreciate as, everything that you're doing also in the show. Uh, well, every, thank you. Every time you air it, thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Yeah, we, we were absolutely blown away and fascinated by your email because we did. Uh, less than two months ago, we had Barry Stevens on the show, and he told a fascinating story. So to for you to reach out to us was, was pretty amazing. Now, from our perspective, what we understood happened that night in terms of the intricacies of, of that evening, apparently... Uh, Barry had a score to settle in Davie, Florida, so he stole a car with, we were told, one other person. And then when they got to Davie, the car broke down and they were accosted by a truckload of rednecks who apparently were going to come back with more guys and beat them up, at which point they decided they better steal a car or jack a car. And that is when I believe somebody... Well, we know that somebody lost their life and Barry was then convicted of first degree murder and sent to prison for over 30 years. Correct? Yes, that is correct. All right. Now, you you did say that there were details of that evening that Barry had left out. What did Barry leave out that happened that night? And take us back to your to your involvement in what happened that night. My reference to the details that he left out has more to do with the actual arrest. Um but that comes obviously after I saw uh, what happened. So if you want me to go back to what I saw, I can do that. And we can then talk about my reference in the email. Well, uh, apparently you you actually saw the crime, the, the murder take place, but they didn't know you saw the murder take place, correct? Uh, I think they were, they were very surprised. 
when they looked up and saw my marked patrol car right after the shooting. Uh, we were in the same intersection. I rolled into the intersection at Nova Drive and College Avenue where the victim, Oren Bauman, was uh, facing, he was on College Avenue facing north, and I was coming east on Nova Drive, getting ready to turn south on College Avenue. When I was at that traffic light, getting ready to make that right turn, is when I saw the Chevy Citation uh, with Oren behind the wheel, and there were three uh, young black men around the passenger side of the Citation. Barry being uh, at the passenger side door, the front, and the two other uh, kids were in the near the rear quarter panel of the car. About the same instant that I noticed them was when I heard the shot ring out. You actually heard the shot. Yes. Had, has that been? Have that? Had you ever witnessed anything as a police officer? I mean, you were a, a rookie cop at that point, right? Correct. I was. I, I was on the job for 15 months. I had just made my probation uh, three months before that, um, and I myself was only barely 23 years old. And the victim, I believe, was only 18, and he was a rabbinical student, and it wasn't even his car, correct? That is correct. Okay. Uh, he was a rabbinical student at Bard College in New York, and he was visiting his family uh, for Passover. And it was especially... Um, gut-wrenching because his mother was delighted that all four of her sons were going to be home for Passover, which was a very rare occasion as they were very busy and spread out um, around the country. So because they were all going to be home, uh, the vehicle thing was was kind of an issue because, you know, they're, they're young men and they had places to go, people to see. And so one of their uh, family friends wanted Oren to have a vehicle to be able to visit with his friends. That was the Chevy Citation he was driving, was so, so, by, by a family friend. So Oren, so they, as we understood it, they pulled Oren out of the, out of the vehicle. Um, Barry jumped in the vehicle, took off, and then you chased him by car, correct? Well, not, yes. not, well, wait a minute. It was my understanding that they didn't know that you saw them shoot, and then you pulled you pulled up and radioed for backup help, and then you circled behind them, and then they realized they better take off, and that's when they pulled him out of the vehicle, correct? Yes, and it's very difficult to explain because it, it was not a linear chain of events, right? Everything right. is happening at the same time. So you and I have to talk about it in segments, but that's not how it happened. Everything happened at once. At the same time, I realized what had happened. Uh, Oren had slumped over the wheel. I was right there. Our vehicles were parallel to one another, not four feet apart. And my driver's side window was down, and so was his. And I could almost reach out and touch him. And it, he was trying to talk to me, but he was unable to speak. And so he started banging on the passenger side of the door, I think, to make sure that I knew what had happened. At that, at the same time, Barry and the other uh, two folks that were with him started, they did not know, I don't think at that point, that I saw what happened. Now, now, so they started on, kind of nonchalantly walking away the opposite direction. Quick question. Barry told us he was with one person. You said there were three people there. Correct. Who was the third person? 
his nephew. Okay. Barry's nephew. He was only 14 years old. Okay, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. That's okay. So uh, Barry and the other 17-year-old, uh, actually all three of them, started walking southbound on College Avenue, which is the direction I was now heading very slowly. Barry had the gun still in his right hand, which had he raised it, he could have shot me in the head because my window was down. So I didn't want to see them. I didn't want them to see me grab for the radio mic because at the time our uh, radio mics were positioned on the dashboard of the car. He would have seen me reach for the radio mic. There were other vehicles in the intersection. There was other traffic there. I did not want to get into a gun battle uh, and potentially other people get hurt. So I waited until they were, my hand was out of their view. Uh, the, my rear quarter panel would have blocked their view as they walked down College Avenue in the swale, the opposite side of me. I grabbed the radio mic, call for help. As I was doing that, that's when I made the U-turn and swung back around. And by then, they were running back to the car and pulling him out, and they took off. They left him in the street, and they took off, and I gave chase. And then how long did it take to get did backup arrive? Because I believe there were canines and helicopter, at least one helicopter, correct? Yes, it, uh, we, the chase took, took us down um, eastbound on Nova Drive, then northbound on Davie Road. Jeff Bell was driving the car. Barry was in the front passenger seat. The other kid was in the rear passenger seat. And um, they were traveling at a high rate of speed. They tried to make that turn. Remember, this is before pre-I-595. So 84 was the east-west throughway. And they tried to make that left turn going too fast and uh, nearly hit the guardrail on the canal side of 84. So um, one of my backup units was there at the intersection because he fell in behind me chasing the car. A, a, an off-duty Fort Lauderdale police detective was coming westbound on State Road 84 in his own car, jumped out and helped my backup get Jeff Bell out of the car and arrested him. At the same time, Barry and his nephew bailed out of the car and started to run down east. The uh, They were running east in the westbound lanes of State Road 84, and I began to chase them on foot. And did the nephew... That's, was when, it, the, that's when the helicopter and the canine units were called. Was the nephew apprehended before Barry? No, that happened uh, right after Barry was... Right, right after Barry was in custody... Um, they were hiding in the same place. Okay. All right. So now, so now Barry, I guess he, he realized that he was caught, that dogs were there, the helicopter, the lights, you apprehended Barry. He walked out, he surrendered. He put, he's a big guy, six foot three, six foot four. He put his hand straight in the air, correct? Yes, he did. And then what happened? The canine officer let the dog loose on him anyway. Um, there was no evidence on Barry's person that he had a gun on him still. Um, he raised his hands and uh, came out of the bush that they were hiding in, in that ravine next to Sacred 84. And the canine officer, it was just myself and the canine officer in the ravine with them, with him. And he sicked the dog on him anyway. The dog bit Barry near the groin, took him to the ground on his knees, and then the canine officer took his boot and kicked him into a pile, uh, a huge pile of 
red ants. Face down. Face down. Barry was laying on his belly in this pile of red ants after being dog bit. And then, and then, what you wrote to us that you you felt you you carried a tremendous amount of guilt for years, I believe, over what happened next, because you were a rookie cop and you were doing what you were instructed to do. What happened next? Uh, he was compliant, Barry. He was laying there. I asked him to put his hands behind his back, which was very difficult for him. You saw him. He's very broad-shouldered, and he was he was. Uh, very broad-shouldered then as well, a uh, very muscular kid. And it was hard for him to get his hands all the way behind his back and clasp them together. He couldn't really touch his hands together. So, but he was still very cooperative, even though he was bitten by a dog and being ant bit at the time too, I'm sure. Anyway, it took all of my weight. I had to put my knee on his back and wrench his arms together to get the cuffs on him. I did that. And then what followed was completely uncharacteristic of anything that I, I believed myself capable of, which was I, um, I pulled my firearm out of my holster and I stuck it to the back of his head. And I started screaming at him about where was the gun, where was the other guy. Uh, and at first he didn't say anything and I looked to my left where the canine officer and the dog, the dog was salivating, snapping, barking, wanting another bite. And he was only, I don't know, about maybe five feet away. And I, I realized what I was doing. I, I had a loaded gun to the back of a head of a compliant 17 year old kid who was handcuffed, proned out in an ant pile. I was a rookie cop. I looked over to the veteran officer thinking I'm fired. I'm so fired. I just lost my job. Because you thought you were being too aggressive? Absolutely. I, I, I thought this is excessive force. I am, I'm done. You know, um, I had already struggled with people who didn't believe that I belonged in Davie because I was a young woman. And so I felt like I had handed myself up on a silver platter. So you looked over at your commanding officer and what kind of directive did you receive from your commanding officer? I looked to the canine cop who was a long time police officer in Davie, and he nodded. Um, Meaning to what? Me, I was very clear about what he meant. He wanted me to pull the trigger. And shoot Barry about in the, the head. Same time, about the same time, um, the uh, Barry told, he hollered at his nephew to come out. As the 14-year-old was coming out of the bushes with his hands also raised, Barry is proned out, not giving me any problem at all. He's completely compliant. The canine officer then went on the radio and and told all the other units that I got my dog's got one and there's another one coming at me. For me, that was cover for whatever happened after that. We would be justified in doing it. Right, and these are the days with no cameras, no video. There's no nothing camera, like no that video. Going on, right, it was just it was just the four of us in a in a dark ravine off of State Road 84. No one else had reached us yet. So you, your impression was your commanding officer gave you a directive to pull the trigger and shoot and shoot Barry because he was an African-American. Uh, that would become my understanding. Yes. How much of that I understood in that moment, I was so shocked. I'm not sure. But in retrospect, that's certainly and and later that evening, based on uh, 
on the uh, comments made about my not shooting them. Yes, that was confirmed. Were there were wow. there repercussions of, of to you of not shooting him and taking Barry out? Um, th- if there were repercussions, they were they were subtle. Uh, you know, there were people who there were guys on the PD that lost a lot of respect for me. Uh, you know, called me names that you can imagine. Right. Um, didn't think I had the guts, and. Uh, and so, you know, they looked at me very differently. Um, everyone expected that I would receive the Officer of the Year Award that year for this particular case. I did not. And um, perhaps if I had done what I was directed to do, that would have turned out differently. That was the consensus um, back then. R- Renee, we've got a, uh, this is a, a good segue into the next question we wanted to ask you, because when Barry was here and we were interviewing Barry, he referred at the very beginning of the show to Davy as Clan City. And we actually would like to play a 12 second clip. And then we'd like to get your, 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 your thoughts on that, uh, on that clip. Uh, sure. Can we go ahead and run that 12 second clip? What in the '80s in Davie, Florida, at the time, there was it was a known fact that there was a large clan faction in Davie at that time. There, probably half the police force were clan. To be honest with you, right? And so at that time, it was it was a known. Half the police half force, the he's saying, he believes were in the clan in 1988 in Davie, Florida. Do you think that's the case? I don't know what the percentages were, but I can tell you that the leadership. Uh, certainly qualified. The police chief. Um, I don't have any verification of that, but that was that was a very strong impression that he gave. Yes, and and other veterans in the police department. There was only uh, maybe 60, 60 or so cops in the department at the time in nineteen eighty six. You know, Barry's Barry's percentages may be close to being accurate. It's hard to say. Some people were more flagrant about you know, owning their prejudice uh, while other people kept it on the down low. But there's no doubt about the fact that the leadership in that department uh, were very proud members um, and some of them generationally of the Klan. You, you, were, you were a police officer from 1986 to what year in Davie? Around, I left policing in around 99. So did you see, was racism rampant? Did you see it occurring all the time in uh, in Davie? Yes, I remember. I think we had one African-American civilian employee. And it was like an epic event when we hired an African-American police officer. Um, and And it wasn't. I think the racism was open, very prevalent and open and unapologetic. There was also um, enormous sexism. Uh, the police chief at the time in my my pre-employment interview told me flat out the only reason he was interviewing women was because he was told by the politicians in Davie that he needed the federal money, the subsidies that the federal government was giving for hiring uh, women minorities at the time. 
Do you uh, think but he also made me promise not to get pregnant in my first five years of employment. Oh my gosh. Do you do you think Renee, we're talking to Renee Griggs, former officer Davy, do you think that um do you think that still exists in the Davy Police Department today? I can give you my opinion, um, but that's only opinion. Mm-hmm. What I can tell you is evidentiary of prejudice, which is the incident that happened last year, right after COVID, when COVID hit, um, when the then Davy police chief got in trouble for making some uh, making a comment about the first law enforcement officer in Broward to die of COVID saying, telling his troops not to worry about it, that everything was gonna be okay because that guy died of COVID because he was gay. Hmm. Um, while that person did resign from his, his position at, as chief, there were no other consequences for him. Um, and it was determined by an independent investigation that he had basically done no wrong. I think that answers the question. The fact that there's never been a female police chief, there's never been a, a police chief of color, also answers the question. R- Renee, we have so much more to ask you, and unfortunately wow. we're out of time on this special edition of Men Going Home. We have so many questions to ask you about how this all changed your life, uh, you know, going back to 1988, and you've accomplished so much since then. So uh, we do look forward to speaking to you in a couple of weeks uh, in Tampa, and we want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Uh, It's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. I wish I would have spoke up then, but I I appreciate you all giving me the opportunity to do it now. It's our our pleasure, and we look forward to seeing you in Tampa. It's never, never too late, Renee. No, sir, it is not. Thank you. Well, that does it for today. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. Please join us next week for a premiere episode of Men Going Home with Edward Dewitt who spent over 35 years in prison after being convicted of first-degree murder, robbery, and escape. All of our shows are available on TrueCrimeMiami.com. And if you do not want to miss our upcoming bombshell interview with former Davy police officer Renee Griggs. And if you like this show, please share it with your friends. And thank you all so much for watching and listening. Thank you.